you're a first-time guest here with us today, we're certainly glad that you have come. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. We're so glad that you're here and that you can join in the Word with us. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 6 through 10. And we've seen that the aim of this text, again, is that we would have joy as Christians, genuine joy, not the kind of painted-on joy, but deep and abiding joy in our fellowship, our deep relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We've learned that in light of that reality of John's aim at driving us to joy in our relationship with the Lord, we have to come to understand some things about the Lord. And the most important thing is that He is holy. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And then in verses 6, 8, and 10, we see that the converse is true of humanity. In Man, apart from God, is darkness and there is no light at all. That we live, in verse 6, in light of a system of darkness. In verse 8, that we are all beset with a sinful nature. And in verse 10, that we all commit individual acts of sin that need the forgiveness and mercy, the atonement of God. Here we are called, in verse 7, to walk in light of the gospel. That, that, that we as Christians come to have a new view of the world, not because of our political, social, moral standing, but we come to have a completely different view of the world because of what God has done in us by the work of the Spirit. All things are made new, and we are called in these verses to walk in light of what God has done in the gospel. Not just according to our particular camps that we like to associate ourselves with and all of that humanistic stuff that tends to be part of the world system. No, we are called to walk in light of Christ and what he has done for us. And in verse 9, we are called to confess our sins, to confess that we are sinners not only in the general sense that we have a sinful nature, but in the particular sins that we have committed. And then God promises to cleanse us from all sin by the precious blood. People are getting excited about this. By the precious blood of His Son. Our fellowship, what this, these verses teach us, verses 1 through 10 in total, is this glorious reality. That your fellowship, my fellowship with the living God, is not grounded in who we are, it is grounded in the precious blood of the Lamb. And so many Christians struggle to find firm footing in their daily walk for joy. There are so many Christians that I find in our generation live their lives in anger, bitterness, hatred. And that even to people inside of the church that God has redeemed by His blood. Now, I don't want to sit, I don't want to put on a false front that there are times that I'm not frustrated. There are times, that, to be quite honest, there are people that God has saved that in my humanity I go, boy, I don't know why you saved that one. And drive me up the wall. But we shouldn't live our lives according to our fleshly 
We should live our lives rejoicing in the fellowship that we and others have in Christ through the meritorious work of Christ. That should bring us true and lasting joy. And can I offer to you this morning, if you are a brother and sister in Christ who struggles to find joy, maybe it is this reality that you're looking to lesser things instead of the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to give you that joy. You see, the more that we come to know Christ, though, there is this reality that will also beset us. And it is this. And that the more we know of God, the more we know of Christ, the more we will intensely struggle with the reality that we are guilty and in need of God's mercy moment by moment. You see, the more we come to know of God and His holiness, the more that we will be convinced that we are guilty and we are not worthy of true fellowship with Him. And we will come to this point where we conceive of God even in shadows in His holiness. And we, if we let that weight press in upon us, we will feel like who, who can really have fellowship with a holy God, the in, with the one in whom there is no darkness at, at all, when there is so much darkness that still resides in each one of us. You may even come to the point of feeling hopeless in the pursuit of a relationship with Christ. You see, the problem is, is we are all aware of our condition. Man is in the darkness, and without God, there would be no light at all. You see, the, the reality is when God comes to dwell with you, when you really do have fellowship with him, a lot of what is painted in the media and on uh, popular religious programs is when we come to know Christ, it is all this fairy tales and pixie dust kind of relationship. But part of what John knows about the Christian life and being a fleshed human that still struggles with sin is that as we come to really fellowship with the true God of heaven, and we really are in fellowship with Him, the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives will bring, at times, conviction. Beware of a gospel that is devoid of conviction. That is devoid of, of pressing into your heart that you are a sinner. You see, if you really know Christ for who He truly is, then you won't settle for this superficial uh, light view that just leaves you with a superficial light joy. You'll lean in to His holiness and you'll aim at true and lasting joy. And isn't it great that that is exactly the aim of John's writing? We find him writing here that we would really understand who we are, that we would understand how holy God is, and that we would have joy in what he has done for us. And with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's word and stand to your feet. And I'm going to start in verse 1 this morning. That which was from the beginning which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we have heard we proclaim also to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we had heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you thankful for your word, acknowledging the reality that we are in fact sinners, beset with sin outside, and we still have indwelling sin within. Father, we ask that in your mercy we would be reminded of all that you have done to make provision for us. Father, might we worship you in spirit and in truth according to the works of your Son, not according to our own works, our own goodness, our own parties, and our own preferences. Might we glorify you for who you are and for who you are alone. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Part of what we need to, I think, understand of what John is really leaning into, maybe in a, uh, a way of illustration, maybe you've met someone, you've had this experience where you meet someone that is truly godly, uh, a hero of the faith. And you know, one of the things that I think is wrong with our generation and even the past generation is this. We leave no room for heroes in the faith anymore. Uh, the second that you have a hero, somebody's going to accuse you of idolizing that individual. Uh, when we really should have heroes, there are men and women that God has raised up for His glory that have been used mightily uh, that the faith of uh, once for all delivered to the saints might be proclaimed. We, we should have heroes. I think one of our heroes for every Christian should be the Apostle Paul. Um, we should look nearer in our day and find men who emulate the gospel. And sometimes, I don't know if this is a unique experience, I don't think that it is, but in my own experience, I've come to know brothers who are so godly that in, in just being in their presence and spending time with them, you become conscience, conscious of your own shortcomings, of your own failings. And, and it's humbling just to be close to them. It's humbling to see God's work in taking an individual throughout their lifetime and molding them into the image of Christ, taking them from what they, what they once were and making them into a demonstration of His grace. And so you can kind of shrink back from those relationships a little bit because you feel this inadequacy in and of yourself. Well, well, when we consider a relationship, and that's what we're talking about in fellowship, with the one true living God, and we can have those feelings horizontally with some of our heroes or other brothers and sisters in Christ who are so godly that we might even tend to be intimidated by them. 
When we consider God in all of His glory and the reality that He has been made manifest as, first, as John writes here in 1 John chapter 1 and that He really is in communion with the saints, we must multiply that feeling of inadequacy a thousand times a thousand every second of our life to come to a true understanding of the holiness of God. And as we come pressed in against that feeling, if we were not buttressed with the words of verses 6 through 10, we would fall into utter despair. Because we would, we would be convicted of the holiness of God and of His righteous standing, and we would realize how unrighteous we are and how far we have to grow. God, I, I, I pray for those brothers in Christ who are convicted, convinced in their own minds that they are holy enough. That they're good enough. That God has made them into something special. That, that real fellowship with God will bring you to a point of humility. Where, where you will cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone. And I think that's what John is aiming at here. You see, we will have this sense of our unworthiness and, and what we will do when we have that sense of unworthiness will be generally in one of two directions of error if we're not standing in these verses. One error is to make excuses about sin and, and to explain everything away. And the other error is to fall into despair. And what John lays before us this morning is yes, we are unworthy. Yes, we are sinful. But there is hope. This, this experience is exactly what Peter experienced during one of his first encounters with Christ recorded in Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, you'll remember this interaction. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he, he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now we know that this isn't just some good piece of fishing advice that God has given to them because of the response here. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And for all of the talk in the church today about feeling the presence of God, there seemingly is so little of repentance and face down humility before the Lord. When we really experience the presence of God, beloved, I promise you this, we tremble at who He is. 
So here, when we are commanded to walk in the light, we have to come to this reality that walking in light of who God is will bring conviction of who we are. Our conscience will begin to condemn us. And we must then settle that in light of what John writes here. One of the things that this passage teaches us is that we need more than mere forgiveness. Now, to God be the glory, we've been forgiven. Amen? And thank God our penalty has been removed. But here's the reality. When we truly come to know God, mere forgiveness, the removal of the penalty, is not enough. Because here's the fact. If you had merely been given forgiveness and that's all that you had ever been given in Christ, you would not have the capacity to walk in the light. You wouldn't want to walk in the light because you know what you would still have even though the consequences of your sin were not abiding upon you. You would have the inward convicting work of your conscience telling you that you are unclean. So even if God were to remove the penalty of sin, which He does, but He was to leave you with a conscience that was not washed, you would not seek after God. You would shrink back. And I think sometimes that's the reality for some brothers in the body. We far too often either explain away our sin or we fall into despair. One of the things that the Old Testament teaches clearly is this whole category of sin. And the modern church wants to do away, they want to move in the era of this direction and explain away sin. Sin really isn't the problem. Oh, but it really is. Our conscience from the very moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden has cried out, for an atonement. Uh, We know that in light of the holy, that we are profane and we are separated from the goodness of God. That we have no access to God without the fulfillment of the law. Now all of the Old Testament Jews understood that they had no right to approach God without a clean conscience. The, the, The Old Testament gives this very vivid picture that the New Testament church should never give away that God is holy and pure and we are sinners in need of washing and redemption. There was this picture of of, of the holy place where the priests would gather and between man and God, they needed a whole system of the priesthood. And then those priests from that holy place into the holy of holies must have been ceremonially washed and made pure so that they could approach God. There was a vivid picture that we as human beings are separated from the holy. And this is why that it is so important that we understand what is being taught in verses 7 and 9. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. We learned last week 
From one side, what we must do, we must walk in light of the gospel, we must confess our sin. And then and only then does He, in His faithfulness, cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of Christ. There are two main points in the Godward bent of those two verses that we are taught. What One is what God has provided to meet our need of a conscience that needs to be cleansed. And two is the assurance that we should have in view of that provision. What has God supplied that you can continue to walk in the gospel? And do you have assurance in that provision alone or are you holding on to something else? And so the question that we have to come to first is this question, what has God provided for us as we become conscious of our need for grace? And the answer is found clearly in verse 7, the blood of Jesus, His Son. That is what has been provided. The blood of Christ has been provided for you and I in Christ that He would cleanse us from all sin. Verse 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we trust that the blood has been made and provided for the church. But we really have to ask, what is He meaning here by the blood of Jesus? What is he aiming at? What work is done through the providing of the blood of Christ? Now John is teaching, I think, something in his own, again, pictorial way. John, if you weren't here last week, part of what we learned is John tends to paint in pictures with words instead of just clear, linear theological arguments like Paul does. And and John is painting a picture here for us, but we have to ask ourselves, what picture is he painting? What is he teaching us about? And really, there comes a dividing point here, and we can't make that dividing point, I think, too sharply, but we have to ask the question, is John writing here primarily about our justification, or is he writing about our sanctification? And I think part of the reason why so many people come to these verses and they despair is they get the answer to that question wrong. And if we're going to answer it rightly, we need to understand rightly what those two different theological realities are. And those are realities that Paul deals with in clear, succinct theological arguments. And here we find John painting a picture. One, justification is our standing in the presence of God. It is who we are in relationship to God. Our justification speaks to our forgiveness of sin, the removal of the penalty of our sin. And not only that, but the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. It's a twofold reality that not only has our penalty been absorbed in Christ, He is our propitiation, our wrath-bearing sacrifice or atonement, but we also see the reality that His righteousness has been given to each individual believer. God regards us no longer as sinners, but as saints. What God does for us in justification is that He removes our guilt altogether. It's not just that we don't receive punishment. It's that we are positively viewed righteousness. Beloved, sin has been removed. That's what justification is. 
Sanctification is the process whereby our sinful inclination and dwelling sins in nature is being dealt with moment by moment throughout all of our lives. Now, justification doesn't do that. Justification deals with the sins that we commit. It deals with the reality of our forgiveness and being given righteousness. But sanctification is a process where the sinful realities of our hearts and our flesh and our nature are being dealt with moment by moment, day by day. Justification deals with the sins that we have committed. Sanctification deals with the sin that remains in us. So the question is, which of these two are being taught here? Now this is important because again, I think many people are discouraged by their misunderstanding of the two. Some seem to think, they come to the New Testament and they have this, what is some have referred to as the Holy Zap theology. Very, very uh, erudite argument. That when God saves you, He zaps you and you are just a bastion of holiness and you will never sin. You'll find this in the world as the world hurls insults at the church that we're hypocritical and all of these things because you claim to have holiness, but yet it's so clear and evident to even the world that you still sin. It's so interesting that the world doesn't want to talk about sin until it's the bride of Christ and then then the world wants to point sin out all over the place, isn't it? Well, we don't believe in the holy zap theology. We know that we still deal with the reality of indwelling sin. In fact, these verses teach us that if we deny the reality that we need to confess all throughout our lives, we are making God out to be a liar. I mean, he deals with that in no uncertain terms. So the question again, is this justification or is it sanctification? Well, to get to the answer to that question, we have to ask another question. Boy, I'm glad y'all are full of questions this morning. And the question we must ask is, what is the blood of Jesus for? What does it refer to? Does it mean that I am being washed by the blood of Jesus in a sanctifying way and that He is purging me of my actual sinful inclination by the working of His blood? Is that what it means? Beloved, I would encourage you that if you use, if you examine every use of the reference to the blood of Christ in the New Testament, you will find that those references always connect to the death of Christ. They always connect to the reality that blood is given a shedding of blood to pour out the life of the sacrifice. And the use of blood in the New Testament must then refer to the death of Christ. It refers to the shedding of blood of Jesus on the cross. The cross is the fulfillment of all of the law. The wages of sin is death and Jesus' death is the death that had to be accomplished that you and I would be forgiven of our sin. It is through the shedding of Christ's blood that we are given life. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his de- the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. We are made right. We are justified by the blood that was shed on the cross. There are arguments today that we should not speak about the blood anymore. That we should not engage ourselves in such barbaric conversation 
as the sacrificial bloodletting of the Son of God. Well, that opinion may be an opinion of the world held in the grips of Satan, but it is not the opinion of the Holy Word of God. So then we have to ask this question. If speaking of the blood of Jesus is pointing to the death of Jesus, what did this death accomplish? And the answer is reconciliation. The death of Christ affects our pollution, our being stained by sin. It removes the barrier between us and a holy God. It brings us not only a forgiveness from the penalty of our sin, but also the righteousness of Christ that we might be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. You see, the, the, the death of Christ affects our need for justification. The life of Christ ultimately then, through the work of the Spirit, goes on to lead us in sanctification. Now, I don't want you to think this morning that I'm impugning sanctification at all. Much of this letter will go on to deal with sanctification. John will tell us to love the brothers, to be kind to one another, to not love the things of this world. And that's important, but here John is clearly aiming at our justification. He is aiming at the reality that our conscience will condemn us, but we have provision in the blood of Jesus Christ for our justification. The question at hand is, how can I have fellowship with God? How can I have joy when I'm so clearly a sinner? How How can we who are so unworthy respond to the light of God's holiness in our lives? How can we really have joy in light of a holy God when we know that we are sinners? Well, some people will come to, and I think if you work verses 6, 8, and 10 backwards, you'll come to this conclusion that the majority of people in this life will just deny that there's anything wrong with the world at all. In your witness for the gospel, don't you find that you have friends that just pretend like the world is just this way. It's no big deal. And John says, well, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the system of darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. The world really is beset with sin. Or there are people and entire theological categories, people who claim to be Christians, who will deny that they have a sin nature. Uh, They'll say, no, 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 we don't struggle with that. And so John shows up and writes in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. And he makes a very clear argument. Or or, or people will go on and they will deny that they need redemption for particular... Look, don't, don't focus on need for confession. Don't do that. That's so just disheartening. That just, that messes with our conscience. Don't do that. And so John shows up in verse 10 and says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. The problem is that our conscience, when it is renewed by the Spirit of God, will tell us the absolute truth that we are sinful people. We will be stirred to deal with the reality that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, and we will be sorely tempted to despair. Our conscience will cry out for a reckoning of sin. George Smeaton wrote this wonderful, actually there's two volumes, and if any of you want them, I will make sure that you get a copy because they're phenomenal. 
uh, wrote these two volumes on the atonement of Christ. One is Christ's doctrine of the atonement. The other is uh, the apostles' doctrine of the atonement. Atonement matters. And, And he says that our conscience demands an atonement. When we are really born again, our inward conscience, our awareness of the holiness of God will demand that our sin is be, will be dealt with. And that is why we find all, all throughout the New Testament language that points at the atonement of Christ. We find words like those who are weary and heavy laden being called to Christ. What are they weary and heavy laden over? They're heavy laden over the reality that they're sinners, that their conscience is convicting them. Or those who thirst, that we desire the washing of regeneration in Christ, or that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, the the Old Testament sinner had had to deal with this same guilt. The, The Old Testament believer came to this reality that as he saw the Shekinah glory of God dwelling among His people, and He saw all that God was doing in His day, and and, and He came to grapple with the reality of who He was. He came to this, this need for a atonement. And so God graciously gives an entire sacrificial system so that the individual may have his conscience absolved and his sins covered. And that's what we... Listen... When you listen, when you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you start to fall asleep, you need to understand the absolute grace that flows through those chapters and the provision that God is making for His people to deal with their soiled conscience and to have their sins removed. But this is the reality. We know the other side of the cross that a dying lamb is not the final point of God's redemptive work. We know That it ultimately, all of that sacrificial atoning system points to who? To Jesus. He is the one. Here here is what we need to have in our minds. In the Old Testament, we see many atonements. There is an atonement. There's a system of dealing with a guilty conscience. But in the New Testament, the entirety of the New Testament is about the definite article atonement of Christ. It is about the blood of Jesus being poured out for those who would call upon His name. John the Baptist knew this. He knew that the Old Testament atonement system was not abrogated and done away with only for the Old Testament, but that it continued on to the definite hard stop atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he said this, In John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the atoning sacrifice. This is the one who will shed his blood that our conscience may be absolved and that the penalty of our sin may be done away with. Isn't that a joy this morning that you know that reality? Christ Himself speaks of our need for the atonement when He deals with our justification. God so loves His bride, the church, that He sent His only begotten Son to be an atonement. Not an atonement, but the atonement once for all. And most people, I think, misunderstand this verse that I'm going to put forward. The verse that we read this morning concerning the atonement. But it's really quite simple when you break it into its constituent 
parts. John 3.16, we all know this verse. And it is about the atonement. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now this so clearly deals with the atonement. It so clearly moves in the force of the atonement. But you have to break it down to see the different components and what they speak to. We need to have in our minds a clear, and let me slow down here, understanding between the difference of a meritorious cause and a motivating cause. A meritorious cause is if Sarah gives me $500 for my glasses and I give her my glasses, she has merited my glasses by giving me $500, which is a gross overpayment. A motivating cause is when my brother Dallas, out of the kindness of his heart, because he's a good guy, comes over and just mows my yard. He is motivated by his own goodness to do what it is he sets out to do. And this verse lays out clearly both realities. The first is a motivating cause. For God so loved the world. That is the motivating cause. God is love, John will say later on. Love is not something that God shows up and does every once in a while. Love is who He is. It is part of His, it is one of His attributes. Through and through, our God is a loving God. And what motivated the atonement of Christ is the love that God has for His church. Secondly, we see the meritorious cause. That he gave his only son. And this meritorious cause is also a, a, just a, a very quick phrase pointing to the atonement. Our God loved us so much that he would not spare his own son, but he took Jesus through providential happenings all the way to the cross where Jesus laid down his own life for you and I. If you ever come to a point in despairing over your sin and whether or not God loves you, stop looking inwardly and look at this verse. That the cost for cleansing you from the penalty of your sin was not some trivial penance given to the Catholic Church. It was that the precious, holy, spotless blood of the only Son of the living God had to be poured out. And you know what? In light of that costly sacrifice, that atonement, God didn't say, no, I'm not going to do it. But He loved you so much that in fact He did pay that penalty. And because of that meritorious cause, because of the atonement of Christ, we now have the result which is that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but that they will have everlasting life. This verse does not say that God loves the world indiscriminately. Because when you balance it with John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the phrase takes away is a really unfortunate rendering. It should be, Behold the Lamb of God who takes up the sin of the world. And the question we have to ask this morning is, did Jesus really absolve the sin of everyone? And the answer is no. Clearly from this verse, the only ones that are absolved of their sin are those who repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a motivating cause, and it is the absolute, infinite love of God. And that merits, what merits our salvation is not that he made a bunch of Baptists. 
Now, he did make a bunch of us. But that's not what merits my salvation. It's not what merits your salvation. What merits your salvation in John's writing here and in 1 John chapter 1 is that He gave His only Son. That there is an atonement that speaks to your sin once and for all. Isn't that something to glory in today? That the atonement merits the salvation of all of those who would believe upon the name of Jesus. And what John is saying here is that the same problem that every person has faced since Adam, Christians will face too. You will have fellowship with God by His grace and mercy, and this will be a joy. But you will grow increasingly aware of your sinfulness. If you are really growing in Christ, you're not growing only aware that there's sin out there. You will grow increasingly to see how you are a sinner. And in those times, beloved, I want you to remember that Christ's sacrifice is always efficacious and it's always sufficient. The apostolic record bears out the atonement and the reality of its implication on the New Testament church. As the writer of Hebrews, and I'm not going to get into the argument of who that is, writes in chapter 9 about the atonement. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify what? Our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's saying you don't have to go back and try to earn your way into the favor of God. The blood of Jesus speaks for you. And he goes on in verse 19, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all of the people, and this is referring back to Exodus chapter 24, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no justification. But praise God this morning. We have a God who is motivated by His love, merited our salvation in the atonement, and if we find ourselves believing in Him today, our sins have been removed. John says there will be the reality that you will live in a sinful world. You will have a sinful nature. You will deal on a daily basis with sins that you commit. But remember that Christ has been sacrificed once for all. His sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated. Think about that. Moses went and he sacrificed bulls and goats. And he he gathered their blood into a vessel. And he walked before the people and he sprinkled it on the tent and on the people as a reminder that their sin had been atoned for, that their sin was covered, that their conscience could be clear now and absolved of their sin. And the picture that John gives us so graciously this morning is that the glorious sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ dying for you and me on the cross, that He has gathered His own blood in a vessel and that He holds it. Does the sacrifice need to be repeated? No. 
But every moment of your life, Christian, you need to be reminded that as you come boldly before Him in confession, He is the one doing the work of washing you by sprinkling you with His own blood. By making you clean. You don't need a religious system. You need the blood of Jesus. Luther had this saying, this phrase, simul justus et peccator. It means at the same time righteous and sinner or simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Now, if this meant... In the same way and at the same time, in the same relationship, you are both sinful and righteous. It would be a contradiction in terms. That's not what Luther is aiming at. What he means is there are two vantage points of the sinner. One is that we are sinners. That held under the scrutiny of the holiness of God, you will be revealed to fall short of the glory of God. That is true of you in the flesh. But from a different vantage point, under the righteous blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are declared holy. You are declared righteous. What he is speaking to in this phrase, simultaneously righteous and sinner, is the double imputation of Christ. That is, that just as in the Old Testament, the sins of the people were laid upon the sacrifice, and the blood of the sacrifice was spilled, that the conscience of the people would be made clean and that their sins would be absolved. So in Christ, our sins have been laid upon Him. And now, in a fuller, more glorious, final way, His righteousness has fallen on us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something worth spending the rest of your life proclaiming to all of your neighbors and your family, even if they think you're crazy? Your conscience doesn't need to be cleansed by the fact that you've been a deacon for however long, brothers. Your conscience doesn't need to be sprinkled clean, ladies, by the fact that you cook well, or the fact that you're a good mom, or the fact that you're a good housekeeper. And I'm probably going to get accused of sexism in that. Whatever empty cistern you run to for justification before God and man, give it up. The blood of Christ has been shed for you. And whenever your conscience convicts you, what John is leaning in to say is, what are you holding on to? If this is the provision, if the provision is the holy blood of God, what is your assurance rooted in? Is it that and that alone? Or is it something else? Something of lesser value? So much more have, have, have our sins been dealt with in Christ that our conscience would be washed? Remember again the, verse, or the words of Hebrews 9. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Some people come to these verses and they interpret them this way. If you're doing good things, you're walking in the light. If you're doing bad things, you're walking in the darkness. If you're walking in good things and you're doing nice things, then God loves you. If you're doing bad things, then God doesn't love you. 
That is a repudiation and a pukish attempt at the gospel. The gospel and what John is saying is not that the Christian can walk in the darkness one day and in the light the next. It's not saying that we vacillate back and forth. It's a reminder of the gospel. He is in the light and He has shown the light into your life. Now walk in light of the gospel that He has sprinkled you clean by the blood of His Son. We at one time were all the darkness, but now we have made, been made light in the Lord. Walk in it. Yes, you will sin, but get up. Don't plead your own righteousness. Don't plead your own church membership. Don't plead your own works in the church. Plead the blood of Christ. Because Jesus, your great high priest, really has a bowl filled with the most precious blood that was ever shed, and He is applying it to your account day by day. This is the reality, beloved. I don't walk by, in the light by my works. I walk in the light of the gospel because the blood of Christ put me there. I was made righteous. I was, my sins are atoned for, past, present, and future. I always love spending time with people that don't know me well, and they begin to see that I'm sinful. Preacher, you're a sinner. Have you been awake? Yeah. That's job qualification number one. Our God atones for sin. There, there are some people that will say foolish things like this. Well, you can lose your salvation. And if you lose your salvation and you walk in the darkness long enough, then you need to go back to the cross. You need to be saved again. That's absolute hogwash. That's not what this text teaches. This text teaches that we must confess the reality that we are sinners by nature and we sin on a daily basis. And as we confess our sins, Christ sprinkles them clean. There are other people who say, well, you just need to put that under the blood. No, you don't. You don't have the blood. He does. You need to confess that you are a sinner face down and ask for absolution. And you know who will put the blood on it? Jesus will. That's who. Day by day, moment by moment, and He will justify you all the way into the kingdom. And He will sanctify you through His life at the same time, through the work of the Spirit in your life. The blood of Christ is really available this morning. Beloved, don't allow anyone to rob the Old Testament meaning of atonement as though it were not something given to the New Testament church. It has been given in greater measure to the church. Fuller, perfect, once for all. And that's what, what John is, is pointing to here. He points to the reality that our joy may be full in our relationship, in our fellowship restored with God, not by looking to cheap substitutes, but by looking to the very blood of the Lamb. Paul asks the question a little bit differently this way. He says, how can God be both just and justifier? How can God be righteous and at the same time bring sinful people into fellowship with himself. 
Verses, three, verses 24 through 26 of Romans chapter 3. Justify, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means wrath-bearing sacrifice, points to the atonement, by His blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The way that we can see God as both just and justifier is through the atonement of Christ. He takes His righteousness and imputes it to us. And He takes our unrighteousness and imputes it to Christ and atones for those sins. Your conscience will convict you as you walk with God. If it doesn't, you have a problem. But when your conscience convicts you, When you feel the weight of your inadequacy and the reality of your sin and the ugliness of your deeds, might you look to the beauty of the shed blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of all of those who call upon His name. You know, the church once sang these words, Would we be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's power, power. Wonder-working power. Only in the precious blood of the Lamb that you might at the same time be a sinner and declared righteous. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning broken over the reality not only of the sin in our world, but the sin that dwells in each one of us. But we are so grateful to know that you have made an atonement once for all, that our sins have been taken away. Father, we we come this morning Able to worship only under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only because He shed His blood upon the cross. And only because He is our high priest at this very moment. And we glory in that reality. And we ask that You would wash our worship. That You would make us clean. That we would be worthy vessels to carry your gospel forward. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know you, who has not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, maybe they've been washed in the waters of baptism. Maybe they've made a religious decision, but they've never been born again by the work of your Spirit alone. Would you do what only you can do? And open their blinded eyes that they would turn to you in repentance and faith and call upon you that your atoning sacrifice would be applied to their account. Father God, would you have your will and your way? Would you be glorified in all things? And might we be reminded of the precious blood that is so powerful to sustain us all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.